This is Michael Cowan, and welcome to Trial Lawyer Nation. You are the leader in the courtroom, and you want the jury to be looking to you for the answers. When you figure out your theory, never deviate. You want the facts to be consistent, complete, incredible. The defense has no problem running out the clock. Delay is the friend of the defense. It's tough to grow a firm by trying to hold on and micromanage. You've got to front load a simple structure for jurors to be able to hold on to. What types of creative things can we do as lawyers, even though we don't have a trial setting? Whatever you've got to do to make it real, you've got to do to make it real. But the person who needs convincing is you. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Trial Lawyer Nation. Your source to win bigger verdicts, get more cases, and manage your law firm. And now, here's your host, noteworthy author, sought-after speaker, and renowned trial lawyer, Michael Cowan. Welcome to today's Trial Lawyer Nation. I'm here today with attorney Mike Bonamorte. Uh, Mike recently got a $20 million verdict in a case there in Chicago to add on top of all the other incredible verdicts he's had. He's agreed to come on and talk to us about how he's done it, how he runs a firm that allows him to try those kind of cases and work with other lawyers to get those kind of cases ready for trial, and how he learned to uh, to try a big case. Before we do that, I want to address a couple of things. First, I want to give a shout out to Law Pods. Law Pods uh, is nice enough to produce this podcast for us. They make it so easy for me. All I have to do is talk to guests, and they do all the production, all the putting out all the neat little clips you might see on social media to let everyone know it's coming out. And I really appreciate all the great work. If you want to do your own podcast and you should really think about it, I highly recommend Law Pods. I also want to mention that the audio quality may not be quite as wonderful as it normally is since I've gone to work with Law Pods. And that is on me, not on them. I, uh, I am in my Albuquerque, New Mexico office today, and I left my headset and microphone in San Antonio, Texas. So we're doing our best. So that being said, Mike, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you, Michael. Thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Tell me a little bit about yourself and your practice. So I have been fortunate enough to be with the same law firm for the last 20 or so years, going back to my time as a second-year law student uh, and clerk at Levin and Percani. When I started back in 2002-2003, we had about seven lawyers. We've grown into a 31, 32 lawyer firm. So it's been kind of fun for me to be a part of that. I grew up in the north suburbs of Chicago in Highland Park. My grandfather was a police chief for 40 years. My dad was an attorney. My dad passed away about three months after my first trial. He was young, he was 50 years old. And he uh, had introduced me to Steve Levin, who I actually knew because I went to high school with some of his boys, but when I was in law school and not sure what I was going to do, I started taking an interest in some of my trial advocacy classes, and he told me to call Steve up, and I called him up, and he had a clerking position opened, and everything else just sort of fell into place. In terms of how our firm operates, we historically have handled a lot of nursing home abuse and neglect cases, as well as high-profile medical malpractice stuff. We have recently uh, expanded significantly our birth injury practice. We've partnered up with Dove Apfel and Seth Cardelli, who are based out of Maryland. And um, 
So they they were actually also came into Chicago and tried this case with me as well as uh, my co-managing partner, Margaret Battersby, and one of our younger partners, Carrie Silverman. So we had a really fantastic team and I was kind of lucky to be asked to be a part of it. Uh, I got involved in the case about a six to eight weeks before the trial. So I want to go back before we get into the trial, a little bit more background on you. What is it about trial work that attracted you to this part of the practice? You know, someone asked me why I, they think I've had this type of success in, in trials. And I think what it boils down to is that the type of person I am is that if I think, if I like you, if I think you've been wronged or taken advantage of or screwed over, I'm going to go to bat. And not going to win every case, but uh, we've sort of adopted the mindset that we're going to certainly try the good ones if they're not, you know, coming to the table and paying what we think to per or what we perceive to be a reasonable value for a case. And a lot of lawyers sometimes I think may do it the opposite because the good cases are really easy to settle, but you don't want to put yourself in a position where you're where you're settling the good ones and trying the bad ones. You want to do it the opposite, and you know that's kind of how uh, we've operated. And I think in this climate, at least here, I mean, it just seems like it's a really good climate to be trying cases right now. Oh, absolutely. Certainly anxious to get back into it. I, I had a little bit of a fix before COVID took over. I had a back-to-back -back trials in December of 19 and January of 20, but this one in June was uh, the first one that I've had since uh, since the courts opened up here. And over the years, you know, most people just don't come out of the womb knowing how to try a case. What have you done to develop your trial skills over the years? Well, I tried to be a sponge, and I'll just digress and go back for a little bit. I didn't even know I wanted to be a lawyer when I went to law school. I, I actually uh, was pre-med. I think I went into college with a predisposition that I was going to be a doctor, and I wasn't afraid of the additional schooling, but I wasn't just quite—I wasn't quite sure that I would, my heart was really into it. So I actually took a year off. I. Uh, continued caddying for a little bit. I bartended, said, you know, I'm going to take the LSATs. And I took the LSATs. And then, you know, when I once I got into law school, I started taking an interest in some of my trial courses. And then over the years, I've talked to a couple of people that have been particularly influential. Obviously, our two founding partners, Steve Levin and John Percani, both of whom I believed to be outstanding trial lawyers, different, but I've taken a lot of information and, and a lot of tips from both of them. Their styles are different, and I've kind of merged them a little bit. People like Mo Levine, uh, I think, you know, was way ahead of his time. And then more recently, in terms of materials that are put out there, uh, Keith Mitnick, I mean, his Bordier stuff, I actually emailed him today that we got the verdict, which was Friday, June 24th. After a small celebration, I was feeling particularly grateful. I sent Keith a nice email and, and particularly commented on some of his rehabil uh, his uh, techniques to stave off rehab, and uh, which I'll talk a little bit about, but I wanna obviously give him credit. And of course, he sent me a very nice email uh, the next morning, Saturday morning, and, 
looking forward to getting together with him in Chicago the next time he's here. He's great. But you, know, you just when you watch this stuff, if you're really interested in it and you read and just be a sponge. I mean, there's just so much. Again, I'm only 43 years old, but I think from what I started to now, the free information, the, the programs that you could go to, just being on the internet, your, your podcast that we're here doing today. I mean, I've listened to a lot of these episodes as well. Uh, there's just a ton of information, so there's really not any excuse not to uh, indulge yourself in it and really try to soak it up and find out what's usable for you as, as the trial lawyer. So let's talk about the case. Uh, can you give a little background on what happened? Sure. Bonita Johnson, she was, this was her first baby. At her 40-week ultrasound, they decided that they were going to induce her because the baby's growth rates had dropped pretty significantly, actually, from the 33 to the 40-week ultrasound. And they diagnosed the baby with a condition called fetal growth restriction. And when they induced the baby, it was October 15th of 2014. Everything looked okay. The baby's biophysical profile was eight out of eight. It was a longer labor. And on October 16th, after about 24 hours or so, the attending doctor had left the hospital and was already sort of contemplating that a C-section might be in the cards because of the slow progress of the labor. She was only dilated at about five centimeters the morning of the 16th. And then once the attending doctor, the OBGYN, left the hospital, uh, there were significant changes in the fetal heart rate strips that the attending doctor said were not brought to her attention, that had they been brought to her attention would have triggered her to do a cesarean section much, much sooner. And what happened ultimately is the baby is born, I believe it was about 1.28 p.m. the afternoon of October 16th and suffered from brain damage. They did utilize a relatively newer treatment, cooling treatment, which is believed to potentially progress, uh, stop the progression of brain damage. And a lot of times it uh, prevents the development of cerebral palsy, which it may have done in this case. Our child's injuries are pretty much strictly neurological. There is some motor dysfunction, but it's not, it's not as devastating as, you've, as we've seen in, in CP cases. So the case, basically, the way it had been worked up, sort of polarized the attending OBGYN with three resident physicians and three resident obstetrical nurses. Uh, the attending doctor had actually written a letter to the head of the obstetrical department before lawsuits had been filed, saying, in summary, basically, that there was just certain information that had not been communicated to her. And AJ, the boy, we introduced just very briefly, 30 seconds to a minute. We had him come into the courtroom uh, and say hello to the jury. He's eight years old now. And you know, largely all of the care that he needs is custodial, should live a normal life expectancy. But, you know, it's particularly significant and sad that, you know, his neurological function, his IQ is 
significantly decreased and uh you know he's pretty much going to be reliant on some level of custodial care for the rest of his life i want to ask some follow-up questions if it's all right with you before we get into the the meat of the case because you know sure. a lot of us haven't done birth injury cases i mean the uh i'm in texas and the legislature let us know in 2003 that if we want to make we want to do medical negligence in texas we're not going to make any money doing it so they uh and, and, and we're going to expose ourselves to a lot of personal liability. And so I've done one in almost 20 years. So I'm going to just ask some follow-up questions. So you said that there were some changes to the fetal heart rate strip. What does that mean? So the, the fetal heart rate strips show both the baby's heart rate as well as the contractions on the bottom of the strip. And the major changes that we saw, and I'll just say it was between about 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning, up until about 12.45, were there were multiple what are called variable decelerations, and then there were also what are called four prolonged decelerations. And both of those things are not good. I mean, you're going to see variable decelerations inevitably probably on every fetal heart rate strip. But when you've got a mom who's making slow progress in the labor and you've got a baby who has this condition called fetal growth restriction and there's some school of thought that they may, those types of babies may not be able to tolerate the stresses of labor as well as a normal size or a regular size baby, then those repeated insults in the form of variable decelerations, prolonged decelerations, which suggest there's cord compression and uh, in turn, a hypoxic environment for the baby, you know, the more they happen, the more you have to probably make a decision if you're the attending doctor and you get all the information to go to C-section because obviously the, the more hypoxic the environment, the longer the, the environment is, the baby is deprived of oxygen, the greater the possibility that you're gonna have this type of uh, an outcome. And again, I think I understand, but I just want to make sure I understand. So I just want to ask a couple more clarifications. So decelerations, that's the heart rate slowing down? Yes. And so and that can be from, you said, cord, something actually pressing the umbilical cord so that the, the mother's blood with oxygen is not making it to the baby. Correct. And so then I guess then the, the poor baby's brain's deprived of oxygen, that can cause brain damage. Correct. When it's going on for a long time. And there's other... I'm probably oversimplifying a little bit, but you're also looking at things like the variability of the heart rate during and both during and after contraction. So, you know, moderate variability when it's when it's going up five to ten beats or down five to ten beats pretty consistently. That's a good thing. When you start seeing that little line that's tracking the heart rate, and then you get to minimal variability. That's not as good. And then in this particular case, we're basically seeing almost a flat line at about 12.45 p.m. that morning of the 16th. That's called absent variability. In addition, uh, the baby, uh, the, this, there's tachycardia, there's the resting tone of the, the uterus is elevated. So the, this combination of things, uh, had they been presented to the attending doctor, was a defendant in the case. I'll get to why we have to keep her in the case, but it was her testimony unequivocally that 
she would have had the baby out by no later than 11 a.m. because that's when we had started seeing these signs combined with the fact that she had been laboring for 24 hours or so. Uh, the reason why she remained in the case is that the nurses, although they didn't recall, uh, suggested that they would have told the doctor each of these things at various checkpoints throughout the day. Obviously, the jury uh, did not believe the nurses or the resident physicians who were employed by the hospital. The attending doctor did get a not guilty, which we kind of anticipate. And as far as the harm and injuries to the child, you said they were neurological. Can you just give a little more detail about you know what the kids suffered from? I can barely speak more than two word sentences no. or phrases. No executive function skills. Expressive frustration uh, may have some component of ADHD. Those are some of the just never going to progress beyond probably in terms of his intelligence beyond maybe eight, nine, ten years old. That that kind of level of intelligence won't ever be able to live independently. The mom, I think. You know, one of the most compelling things that she said is that she's never had a babysitter and the kid is eight years old, other than her parents that she lives with. And she just hasn't been in that position where she's felt comfortable or that level of trust to leave him with someone. So, you know, a big part of our case was our, our PM and our doctor worked on a life care plan for this baby and it really involved custodial care through through an agency that you know would have some level of consistency over the years the defendants i think sort of offensively suggested perhaps he could live in a group home really that was just to reduce the value of the pure economic damages so yeah i mean when you see aj he walked in the courtroom he's adorable he looks like a any other seven, eight-year-old kid, but, you know, when he talks, you can clearly tell he's just, either he can't express himself or he just doesn't have the capacity to do so. And I think it, during closing arguments, I don't know which is actually worse because uh, he's yeah. either trapped and can't say what he wants to say, which may be part of the frustration that he sometimes expresses, or he just doesn't have the capacity to think at that level. So. So what were the defenses in a case like this? The major defense in the case was that fetal growth restriction was caused by some sort of unknown genetic issue that didn't allow the baby's brain to develop normally. And when I got involved in the case and I was learning about it, and many people might thinking now, but it seemed ridiculous because there actually was some genetic testing that was done at the hospital. Uh, there was a, a geneticist who gave a deposition in the case. So they advanced this theory without having hired a genetic expert. We did. We, the plaintiff hired, we had 11 different experts and Speaking of birth injury cases, this was the first one I had ever actually really gotten involved in, and it's it's overwhelming from a standpoint of just the number of expert uh, witnesses that are involved. 
But that was sort of the main defense. And, and it, 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 I got to be honest, it, there were times in the trial where, you know, when you can't get up there, it's hard to crop. It's hard to cross-examine that defense because they have this 33-week ultrasound that shows the baby's, uh, you know, head circumference, length, femur length, things like that, and everything is at the, you know, 40, 50, 60 percentile, and then you see at 40 weeks, the baby's dropped off uh, pretty dramatically. When you look at it on a graph, it's it looks horrible because he's down in the 10 percentile or below. But, you know, there were a lot of references that he fell off a cliff, which I found particularly offensive. I said, you know, when you fall off a cliff, you see actual damage usually. Here, the MRI of the brain, the brain, in according to our pediatric neuroradiologist, is well-developed, but for the clear watershed injury, watershed is a how they describe the type of injury that you get from a what's called a partial prolonged asphyxia. And besides for that brain damage that lights up on the MRI, the brain appears to be well-developed. But there were definitely over a pretty much a month-long trial, a lot of times where I'm thinking, man, it's starting to, I was worried that it was going to appeal to some people. But I think at the end of the day, they didn't have a geneticist, probably because they couldn't get one. I mean, I don't know why you would offer that defense if you, uh, without it. And then they also didn't have a pediatric neuroradiologist. Uh, they had a pediatric neurologist. We had both a pediatric neuroradiologist and a neurologist. And uh, But that was the main defense, that this FGR or fetal growth restriction was as a result of a, placenta, uh, a genetic issue. Uh, they also had sort of a weaker defense of chorioamnionitis, but I don't, the, it was clear that they weren't going all in on that. It was just sort of another, let's throw a dart up against the wall, see if it sticks type of, type of defense. So let's start with uh your trial strategy. So first of all, before I get into the jury selection and stuff, what was your strategy for or techniques for getting something this technical and making it understandable to jurors? When I first, I'm a, maybe I'm a good person to talk about it because I that's just, that's how I felt. It was extremely technical. I, I actually started creating a on my desktop a birth injury glossary because I all of the different types of decelerations and what each one meant and all of these terms. It's a lot to really learn. And again, I got to give credit to my partner Margaret and how she worked up the case as well as Dove Apfel and Seth who came in. But having them as a crutch on the medicine. You know, when I'm preparing for cross-examinations and stuff like that, and just that sense of comfort that if someone says something on the stand that doesn't make medical sense, I've got them sitting at council table ready to say that's bullshit and, and don't worry about it was huge. But I think to keep it simple, it was, you know, we focused obviously more on the defendant's conduct in the medical records because all over the defendant's medical records, records, they attributed the cause of AJ, the, the boy, his injuries to HIE or hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy. So 
they talked about how the data doesn't lie and our you know response to that that we hammered the number of times that their own medical records shortly after the birth talk about HIE the fact that they use that this this therapeutic cooling technique which is designed specifically for HIE subsequent medical providers were treating him as if he had and has HIE and, and you know that kind of I think at the end of the day is what sort of one out yeah but it's actually it's like any new type of case that you get involved in i mean i've been involved for the first time in a case that involved obra that can that can be a little bit or osha and that can be a little bit overwhelming but you know when you get a good experts that explain that even though there's thousands and thousands of pages that talk about osha regulations here are the only two that really matter it simplifies things so the theme that we had in the case was sort of a, a lack of initiative type of theme because there's it's clear individual nurses and individual resident physicians knew certain things, but they never got the information to the one person that could make the decision. So to the extent that defense uh, maternal fetal medicine doctor or their experts were saying, well, you know, this is clinical judgment, that may be true, but the person that needs all the information in this case wasn't given all of the information and testified clearly what she would have done with it. I mean, the defense, I mean, it was very obviously that, that the hospital and the uh, lawyer for the OBGYN were at odds. I mean, the hospital's lawyer called the defend one of the, the defendant OBGYN our star witness during the trial. And I, of course, on rebuttal got up and said, she's not our star witness. And I'm, back in my mind I'm thinking yeah maybe she kind of is but when you polarize the defendants like that I think it takes a little bit of steam out of the defendants sort of BS causation argument because they just didn't have the support I mean the, the the medical experts to back it up they wanted to say that it wasn't I, I think they were trying to suggest that maybe that the brain damage that we saw wasn't permanent which makes no medical sense, but then you don't have a pediatric neuroradiologist to back it up. They want to say it's genetic and they don't have a geneticist come to testify at trial. So at the end of the day, it was getting, you know, we're certainly nervous. It's a little bit scary just because over four weeks when you see the same, and I give the defense lawyer credit, you see the same graphs put up that show this, show this deceleration of growth during the last trimester. You know, it, it, it can be a little bit unnerving but at the end of the day i think our strategy was just to focus on the objective evidence that we had in the case and the testimony of the witnesses and obviously that's what went out at the end of the day so tell us about how you did the jury selection and what you were looking for in jury selection on a case like this we broke up the the jury selection into two days because of this particular judge's uh, preferences and uh, and COVID restrictions and things like that. It was a little more tedious, obviously, because she did not have the entire group in the courtroom. So we got 36 jurors sent up, and I picked, just did one group a day, actually. So we got 18 in the box, which was a little bit more than at least I was used to. We usually do 14 in Cook County, so that was a bit of a challenge. And then we did a the, the second panel the next day. 
And in Illinois, there's not like a magic set of words. I know some states say, you know, a strike against, things like that. We don't have that, at least to my knowledge. And I've had, I've done my own research and asked other people. So historically, I've always been, if I can get them to say one side starts out a little bit ahead, that seems to be enough in terms of a motion for cause. Uh, we were, each side was given seven preemptories. Uh, day one was a little bit, in my opinion, too heavy, unintentionally, but it got into, I don't know if it was just coincidental, but it seemed like a lot of people had experiences with uh, different types of issues during labor, some birth injuries, things like that. And I thought things were rolling, rolling pretty nicely. I thought, you know, I went in to make our motions for cause, and I got I got zeroed on, on my motions for cause. Oh, wow. And I had to use, despite, you know, I think I'm getting, people are saying the right things. And what I learned was that, and I have nothing but great things to say about the judge, but she was, uh, receptive to rehab, either by herself or by um, defense counsel. So it was, you know, I sit down, then they get up, someone says you could be fair, they say yes, oh, you're on. Like, it, 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 what I was doing wasn't enough. I, I will say that I've done, for the last several trials, a version of Keith Mitnick's apple pie, cherry pie, uh, being in Chicago, I do deep dish versus thin crust pizza, and it fits nicely. I thought that it was an original idea until I went back to don't eat the bruises. And, of course, Keith says deep dish versus thin crust <laughs> in Chicago, which I pointed out to him after the trial. But what I thought was I had to switch gears day two because we had to use four preemptories of our seven on the first day, and I was a little bit nervous based on what had happened. So I went to one of the shows, my founding partner, Steve Levin, is also a junkie for all things related to trial strategy and storytelling and Bordier. And he said that Keith has something out there on staving off of uh, rehab. And I looked at it. It was really helpful. I put some of my own little twist on it, but it's the whole uh, mutual respect part of the process. And, and what it was was I do the same type of thing. Someone starts out ahead. And then, you know, you throw a bone to the other side because inevitably people will say that I start out ahead, even though I'm only asking whether the defense starts out ahead. And then you say... You know, I appreciate you respecting the process. Uh, you've been honest with us. You've respected this this process, and it's a process of mutual respect. So what is meant by that? You respected the process by being honest with your answers. We'll respect you by uh, the fact that no one in the courtroom is going to twist your arm and try to get to change how you feel. And I took it, I maybe a step further. And I said, you might even get asked whether you could be fair. And you'll probably say yes. But that doesn't change the fact that the other side starts out a little bit ahead. And that worked wonders. And it wasn't, it wasn't a huge difference from day one to day two, other than that exception. But the genius of it is that no one really even touched these witnesses and even tried to 
to rehabil uh, rehabilitate them because they probably figure they look like an asshole yeah. if they do that. So I went from using four preemptories to having either all of my motions for cause granted or agreed to and using zero peremptories on day on day two. So that was obviously huge. But, uh, you know, after the after the initial. Uh, for those of you that don't know the, the, the pie or the pizza or whatever analogy that's to introduce bias as a concept and, and bias doesn't have to be a. Bias or prejudice don't have to be bad words in this courtroom. I don't particularly like deep dish pizza. Uh, I'll eat it if it's in front of me. But what you do is you ask the jury to sort of divide themselves. And it was interesting. The first day, like everyone loved deep dish. And the second day, everyone liked thin crust. But once you introduce that concept, you say, I want you to imagine that I, that I the lawyer, am asked to judge a pizza making contest and Mr. Smith over here is making a deep dish and Miss Jones over here is making thin crust. Who here thinks that I should tell the, the, these contestants that I don't particularly like deep dish? Everybody raises their hand, of course, because that's the fair thing to do. And who here thinks that by telling them that, that somehow that makes me an unfair person? No one raises their hand. So by exposing your bias towards something lighthearted like pizza or whatever it is, you basically, you, you actually made yourself convey the idea, the concept that that's actually the fair thing to do. And then, you know, this is not, this is obviously not a, about something as lighthearted as that. It's about a medical malpractice, birth injury, and you go into who here has feelings about that. And it just flows really nicely. And again, I think Keith is just one of those lawyers out there that for, uh, lawyers of all levels of experience, especially, well, I shouldn't even say especially, of all levels of experience, he's someone that I think puts out material that's really instantly usable. And this is a perfect example because it happened overnight, basically. Something I watched really changed the progression of Fort Deer the next day. Yeah, that's one thing I like about Keith stuff because it's got stuff, I mean, for anybody, but even after over 120 trials, I'll still like, okay, that's great. I'll try that. You know, it's 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 really effective, practical stuff instead of just some grand theory. And he tests them. He's trying cases all the time, which makes a huge difference. So I want to just ask real quick, why did you, why did you all see 18 jurors instead of the, you know, the 12 and 2 alternates like a normal, like you normally would? I may have been less than clear. Okay. So we didn't, we actually only ended up with 12 and two alternates. Okay. I, we were hoping to get more alternates, but that would have had to be like, we would have had to have another day of jury selection. It just worked out that we had 14. What I meant was that for the questioning uh, during jury selection, I had to question 18 at a time. Okay which I don't know, maybe that's normal in other jurisdictions. It seemed a lot for me, given we also were somewhat limited on time, which is another reason why I think, you know, introducing bias in a simple way helps get to the point that you can do the voir dire a little bit faster. Because I don't think I even got to a lot of the planned topics on day two. It was just so effective how it went when I was staving off rehab, just talking about personal injury med mal cases. 
So it, at least in Cook County, in my experiences, we've only had to question 14 at a time, but okay. it presented a little bit of a challenge because they had 18 in the box. Well, you're lucky. Try 48 and get in 30 minutes with it. <laughs> so, Right. So how about opening statement? What was your uh, theory for opening statement and trying to, you know, again, simplify a complex case? So my partner, Margaret Battersby, gave the opening statement. I did all the voir dire. She did the opening. I did the closing. And then we sort of divided up between between four of us the different examinations. I begrudgingly did a direct. Margaret and I joke about prior trials that we've had together. There was one where I actually offered to do two of the planned cross-examinations that she was going to do if she would do one direct <laughs> that I was going to do. But the opening was certainly more scripted. We also worked with Eric Oliver in oh. this case, who helped us with jury. I worked with Eric quite a bit. I'm a big fan of how he likes to uh, present the case cases, which I think is some. There's a lot of similarities between what he and David Ball do. I think a major difference is that, and I think it flows nicely, is that he presents the right way first. How is it supposed to look? And, you know, it was pretty simple. I mean, I actually have Margaret's opening in front of me. We, we started off with what's the basic premise when a first-time mom comes into the hospital? A safe vaginal delivery is the goal. But when the circumstances change and a, and a safe vaginal delivery no longer seems uh, likely, then you have to go to plan B. And that's as simple as this case was. And is that we kind of divided it up into two stages of labor, sort of the uneventful first stage of the labor, which started on October 15th in the late afternoon and continued into the morning of October 16th. Everything's okay, although it's going a little bit slow. When the doctor leaves, she's clearly, and this is a big point, I think why the I, at least when I looked at the case, and obviously the jury, based on the result, believed the attending doctor, is that it is documented in the medical record from one of the nurses that the doctor said, indicated that she was contemplating a C-section because just of, of the slow progress. That alone was enough for her to start contemplating a C-section. So when you add in everything that happened over this period of time, 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning, up until the time of delivery, which was 1.28. I mean, it's weird how things stick with you. There's, I remember yeah. the time, the prolonged decelerations now as I'm talking about it. But I think that's why, you know, her, the, our side of the story was believable because there's documented objective evidence in the medical record, which, as I'm saying, it sort of, sort of ties into why I think the jury believed us on the causation, because all of the objective evidence said the baby has HIE, not, you know, some unknown, unidentified genetic condition that caused this fetal growth restriction, absent any visible damage or abnormalities in the brain, but for the, the brain damage. I mean, that was another thing. I mean, one of the defendant neurologists in his deposition said basically, this was a clever question by one of the co my colleagues that was working up the case. It's like, so we can probably do all the genetic testing known to mankind. It may not reveal anything, but you're still going to have the opinion that this baby had a genetic condition. And he said, yes. 
So that that's just, you know, something that you can't, that just shows the bias on his part. I mean, there, there's nothing we were ever going to say to this, this guy that would change his mind. Uh, I had to, I cross-examined him via Zoom at the trial, which was a bit of a challenge. Uh, I would have liked to have him live, I think. So how did Margaret set up this dichotomy of either you believe, you know, one set of people at the hospital or you believe the doctor and pursuing both of them? Well, I think we we sort of soft played why we were suing the OBGYN. I mean, there was no, it was very clear that we were sort of putting everything on the hospital and, and we I don't think we really minced words. I, even our own experts said, look, the defendant, if the defendant OBGYN, OBGYN attending knew all of these things, then the standard of care would have required him to deliver. So his testimony in terms of a criticism, if you call it that, against the OBGYN was sort of a hypothetical. Yeah. Because it's just an issue of the facts. And in our position was it's not really for us to to decide. You have to decide the facts, you know, and then from the OBGYN's position, her case is, look, you know, I sort of agree. you got to decide the facts, but this is why our testimony is more credible. She's maintained her story for seven years. She wrote a letter after this event saying that she was upset by what happened. She was shocked when she got to the hospital and delivered the baby to find that the baby was brain damaged. The medical records say she was contemplating a C-section and none of the nurses or resident physicians had any memory of telling her this. They just said that they believed they wouldn't possess their custom and practice. So I don't think we had a choice but to keep her in, but it was very clear how we put the case on that, you know, we were targeting the hospital and the, and the residents and the nurses as the main culprits here. Yeah, I'm guessing there's nothing in the medical records indicating that they informed the doctor of the changes. No, there's like one, there were a couple of conversations, but even those sort of hurt them. I'm trying to remember, there was one that said like, said something and then they, oh, told of a, a vaginal exam, told the results of a vaginal exam and the the whichever obstetrical nurse or resident testified about it said, well, when I talked to her and told her about that, obviously I told her everything else that was going on. So it was one of those situations where they they could not point to any documentation to clearly say that they informed her of these specific findings on the fetal heart rate strips. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. And now, back to the show. You said it was a four-week trial. How many? How much of the time was you all presenting the plaintiff's case and how much of the time was the defense putting on the defense case? Let's see. I think, well, it's probably four weeks all in. We got, we started right after Memorial Day. We closed on June 23rd. I think most of it was in our case because the defendants, 
in Illinois, and I'm sure in other jurisdictions, we are allowed to play statements from the discovery depositions of the defendants. In our case in chief, uh, we actually did not call anyone adversely. And then the defendant hospital who employed the residents and the and the nurses did not call any of those individuals. The only defendant that was called live was the attending OBGYN during her part of the case. So I think ours was probably two weeks and theirs was probably one week to seven days. And then there's probably about four or five days of motions and limine and jury selection combined. So ours was a little bit longer. Why do you think they didn't call their people alive? Because it would have given them uh, us another chance of cross-examining them. And then what was your strategy for you know playing their depots instead of their discovery deposition clips instead of call, calling them adversely? Well, traditionally, it's because it sort of, you know, give us two bites at the apple. In this case, I think that factored into it, but it, it was just strong statements that we had for each of these individuals. And we really put a lot of thought into the way that they were organized when we put them on. So it, it just nicely kind of polarized all of the defendants against each other and sort of took us out of that discussion the way we did it. And I've done it several times. I did it in another case with Eric Oliver where we got I got a a $12 million verdict and a failure to diagnose lung cancer for a 40-year 40, 40 smoker that was 70-something years old at the time. You want to talk about a scary voir dire. I'll digress for two seconds. The first question I asked during that voir dire was, my client smoked for 40 years. She developed lung cancer. Now she's suing her doctors because they didn't diagnose this. How do, how do you all feel about that? Wow. People start raising their hand, and the first person that raises their hand is holding up an imaginary pack of cigarettes, and they're saying, well, there's a label right here. In that case, I made seven, and then, I'm, of course, well, who else feels that way? Everybody's raising their hand. I'm going into panic mode thinking there's no way we're ever going to win this case, but I made seven motions for cause of the first 14 that I questioned, and the judge granted six of them in that case. And we ended up getting a big verdict. We've done this in other cases where, you know, I think if you give it enough thought in terms of how you're presenting the admissions, like, for example, in that other case that I just digressed to for a second, we would play the admissions of the radiologist and then we would call our radiologist live. Right. So now the jury is thinking, boy, the defense has admitted to a lot of things that the plaintiff's own experts say, and now we're kind of setting the stage for later cross-examinations of the defense experts. Because I, I, both in this case and in that other case, and I'm sure other ones, I've said, you know, the defendants have admitted to things that are sort of what the plaintiff's experts are saying. I mean, now they're like just hired guns, basically, that are coming in and saying, the complete opposite, or at least ignoring all the objective evidence and the testimony that's been given to date in the case. One of the defense experts in this case was the maternal fetal medicine doctor. I'll just tell you kind of a funny story because this has never happened to me before. 
he has kind of a reputation for not always being that prepared. I didn't, I have not had any personal experience with him, but during his direct examination, the defense lawyer put up no medical records, no fetal heart rate strips. All he had in front of him was this demonstrative timeline that, of course, left out a lot of the key information, at least what we thought was key information. And my partner, Margaret, is sitting next to me, and I'm, I'm literally about to stand up for the cross-examination. And she whispers, she says, I think you can trick him a little bit. And, and I said, Margaret, I don't think I'm going to have to. Just watch. So I decide that the first question I'm going to ask the guy, doctor, what are the names of the three resident physicians whose conduct you've been hired to defend in this case? Dead silent. Wow. I mean, dramatic. Because I'm, I'm letting it linger. And I don't like to stand behind a podium. So I'm kind of pacing around, looking at my... My lawyers are like fighting to contain their smiles. A defense table, the lead attorney has got his head in his chest like this. There's a representative from the hospital whose eyes are as big as, big as her head. She's leaned almost across the table. And I let it go for about 30 seconds to a minute. And finally, the guy blurts out the name of a doctor that had been involved on October 15th recall that nothing was going on. This guy's not a defendant in the case. I said, no, doctor, he's not a defendant. Then he says, well, Dr. Johnson, she's the OBGYN. I said, no, doctor, she's got her own lawyer. He's sitting right there. And then finally I let him go and I just tell him the names. But after that, the cross-examination <laughs> was, was sort of over at that point. That's great because the jurors don't have the mingle knowledge of who's telling the truth in the medicine, but they, they know that you right. got to know your own client's name. You would think, Michael, right? You would think. Well, the thing is, because it doesn't matter, they're going to say the same thing every time, no matter what the facts are, so why do they have to look at them? Right. You know, another just funny story, I hope it's not one where you had to be there, but we were trying to come up with analogies because what they were really doing, they were saying... Fetal growth restriction, therefore abnormal brain development, without really making the connection as to how. They couldn't identify a part of the brain that was underdeveloped or it developed less than optimally. So it was like they were missing link, and we were trying for weeks to come up with analogies. And I had said, for example, if you're in the MBA, you're probably tall. But not all tall people are in the MBA. So the, the I, I didn't like it. And there were a few others that I didn't like either. And I can't remember what we settled on, but in the minutes before I was going to give the closing argument, the judge had actually come out. I saw Eric Oliver sitting next to my partner, John Mercati, in the gallery. I run over to him, and I've got about two minutes before the closing's about to start, and I said, Eric, I hate all of our analogies. I, can't, I don't like them. I don't feel comfortable with any of them. His first response is to go like this, like you're telling me now you're about <laughs> to get the closing. And he said, well, you could use Bob Nora, because we had talked about the fact Bob Nora is a defense lawyer. He represented the attending OBGYN who, who got a not guilty 
and you know, I have a very nice relationship with him. He's about six five, and I'm maybe when I was playing high school football, basketball, and baseball, I was probably listed at five nine, five ten. But it's a, probably a stretch. I'm probably about five eight, and I run over to Bob and I said, Bob. I may ask you to stand up during my closing argument. Would you just do it? And he says, yes. So I'm sort of talking about, you know, the baby wasn't overly small. It was like five pounds, three ounces. The baby's lot in life wasn't predetermined by this fetal growth restriction. And I said, Bob, stand up. And I go and I go shoulder to shoulder with him. And he's about a head taller than me. And I looked at the jury and I said, ladies and gentlemen, people, come in all different shapes and sizes. And the judge starts laughing. The jury starts laughing. The gallery starts laughing. And it was one of the, probably one of the more memorable moments that I think I've had in a trial. And obviously I can smile about it because of we won. I never talk about it and we lost, but it, it was pretty funny. I'll talk about it for years. Absolutely. So what else did you do to kind of bring it home and motivate the you know, your good jurors to go back into the jury room and fight for you? I think, you know, on the topic of the damages, it hit kind of close to home. I mean, this is just an interesting sort of symmetry. I have a daughter that's seven. She turned seven on June 22nd of 2015. I was giving the closing argument on June 23rd uh, on behalf of a at the time, seven-year-old boy who was brain damaged. And, you know, I was, I can get a little bit emotional when I'm thinking about some of the people that I represent. And I always go home and prepare for my closing argument at my house. I got a good setup. I, no one's there. No one bothers me. If I need something, I call people at the office. So I was, you know, fortunate that I got to take a quick break, say happy birthday to my, my daughter. And... Of course, during the when I was prepping for the closing argument, I was thinking to myself, I'm not going to make it through because I'm crying at my house as I'm thinking about the parallels between what this boy has to deal with and what his mom has to deal with and what he's going to have to deal with for the rest of his life versus all of the you know opportunities that you know I'm able to afford my daughter and my partner Margaret's able to give her kids and and. For some reason, that was just making me really emotional on top of the fact that it's my daughter's birthday. And Bonita, the mom of AJ, our client, we find out before the couple of months before the trial is pregnant. She goes into labor during the last week of the trial and has her second child, who I'm glad to say is healthy, happy, everybody's doing great. On my daughter's birthday, the day before the closing argument. So, you know, I tried to just think about that. And, and the defense, I don't like to obviously get too personal. Well, number one, it could be objectionable. But the defendant talked about being a grandpa. And then on rebuttal, I said, I'm a dad. I have a seven-year-old. And seven-year-old kids, they're wonderfully curious. They perceive things. They understand things. They can tell you what their dreams are. And... I noticed when I was talking about that, just putting not like anything overly profound, but putting it into words and things that people could understand and relate to, that I was really connecting with people. 
I mean, every mom on the jury was crying. I'm sure every dad on the jury was crying, at least on the inside. But, you know, I think that really brought it home. Obviously, I get a little bit indignant on rebuttal. I, I try not to be quite as much during the opening part of the closing, but, you know, by the time you get to rebuttal, they, the guy's talking about our experts when his own experts don't even know the names of the clients and just crazy stuff. So it was sort of a free-for-all. And one thing that the 20 million was a compromised verdict because I talked to some of the jurors and the, the vast majority of the damages were for the economic part. So I was, that was, if I was going to say I was disappointed in anything, that would be it because I did think I really connected on the intangible part of the case. I think I heard, I've heard someone or we've been talking about, at least in our office, about trying to make the intangibles tamage, uh, tangible. Pain and suffering is, is the opposite of that is peace and comfort so that something has actually been taken away. And it's also a way of sort of double counting, un, uh, unintentionally double counting. But when I talked to some of the jurors, a lot of them stayed and talked to us. We're giving us hugs. You know, it's like a love fest after a successful trial. But they said that, you know, the majority of them were in the 30 to 35 million range. And they significantly compromised the non-economics, gave every bit of our life care plan, which was in the 15, 16 million. So, you know, it was finally a chance where I really just got to bring everything home in terms of pointing out the ridiculousness of the defendant's, quote, genetic theory and just really hammering, you know, all of the objective evidence that we had in our favor. You know, why they never really got serious in terms of settlement, I don't know. I mean, they, they, I was not involved when we had mediated the case years ago. I think officially they had offered five. They offered a high-low, and we turned it down, and just worked out good. I mean, we gave the case to the jury on the 23rd. They deliberated for three hours on the 23 or four hours, and then they came back the next day after another three or four hours. And it was a good way to start the weekend. Absolutely. I want to kind of change gears. I mean, you did such a great job in that trial. But one thing, you're not just a trial lawyer, you're also one of the managing lawyers at your firm. And, you know, you and I were talking a little bit before the show. You talked about how a lot of times you're coming in, like this case, closer to the end when other people at the firm have worked up the case. How do you run a firm in a way that, you know, allows you to get great workup done through others? So I think one of the things that I didn't mention to you before is the the longevity of the people that we have. So, you know, I've mentioned my partner, Margaret, who tried this case. And, you know, any time she asked me to get involved in a trial, I'm really comfortable that no stone has been left unturned. But our younger uh, partners and our more senior associates, almost everybody that we have here uh, with the, some recent exceptions, started at the firm, either as a first-year lawyer or even before that as a law student. So we have, I think, 10 or 11 partners, and we've sort of broken 
broken things down a little bit into different team approaches. And I, you know, each of us has our own things that we're particularly good at or, or we like to talk about. I mean, I have a partner, Carrie Silverman, who, you know, can tell, teach any associate how to set up any type of case. And uh, I get more involved in the strategy and the case plan and who to depose. I get involved in cases once they're set for trial, you know, at different times, depending on the magnitude of the case, who's worked the case up with someone more experienced. I can get involved. I could jump in three, four, five, six weeks in advance of a trial. And I, I think it's actually a really good thing because I I get into the weeds, obviously, and I understand the details and I understand the medicine, but I also can see the big picture as somebody that's really, you know, reading all the testimony for the first time. I think so, that's so important because the jurors are seeing it the first time and you've been living a case for years. Everything becomes second nature. You have this curse of knowledge and it's just like, well, everyone knows this. Right. But the but coming in fresh towards the end, you really do get to look at it like a juror would look at it. and. You, you kind of see the missing links, you see the holes, you see where we're skipping steps, and you really can come in and, and help solidify the case. It's a fun way to, to practice if you're with people to do it right. Right, and I, I think that we have a really solid group of younger partners, senior associates, and younger associates that, you know, we put a lot, if we're going to, I'm 43 years old. Most of the lawyers at the firm are younger than me, and I don't consider myself to be an old guy, but it's really exciting because I think the firm is in a good position, but it's also, I think, you know, we have a responsibility to make sure that all of these younger lawyers are getting the right type of supervision. And when you have enough younger partners and senior partners that are are really invested in the success of the firm and really, you know, want to do right by the clients. We have a very, we take a very, very collegial approach to the practice of law. So people have their caseloads, but they know, you know, with, with some exceptions, like right now, because my door is closed and will remain closed because I'm starting another trial next week uh, with Margaret. We, we have an open door policy. I regularly talk to lawyers every single day. Uh, you know, my door is always open. They know how to reach me. I make myself accessible. And I think, you know, when you do that with younger people, you know, they're receptive to that and they want that. You know, it's hard to find. It's hard in your business. I think hiring it can be difficult because I don't know what are you in a 15, 30 minute interview? What are you going to find out about whether someone's got what it takes to be a trial lawyer? I mean, frankly, I ask people to tell me something about themselves that's not on their resume, just to get them talking to see if I can have a conversation with people. And we, you know, it's not perfect, but we have a really solid group in place right now that I think are eager to learn, that are receptive to the ideas that we have, that are receptive to the uh, fact that there is a ton of information that's available to them on the internet and at seminars and things like that. And, you know, the people that there's, I think, a certain hit factor uh, when it comes to being a trial lawyer, but I think we've got a lot of people that can do it and, and uh, I'm excited about it.
Yeah, me too. And I, I, I share what you feel, you know, this practicing with other people that are all trying to get better and all trying to do a good job. It just brings joy. It makes it more fun to go to work every day and having that collaboration and not being stuck in an island like like I was when I was solo decades ago. It's a great way to practice. And you got to remind, I think, the younger lawyers what we're doing. I mean, so, you know, every trial that I've had, a couple losses in there, obviously, too. You know, I send an email out and I talk about what happened and who we represent. And I tell stories about, you know, what these people have said to me and how appreciative they are. Sometimes, you know, especially when you have a big, a lot of cases, you think of them as a case and you lose sight of the fact that these people have a story. This is their only case. They are looking for somebody to tell that story for them, uh, to speak up for them, to stand up for them, for themselves. And, and, you know, we've been talking lately about, you know, there's been a period of time, I don't think we're living in it right now, but um, there's still people out there who think trial lawyers are the bad guys. And no matter what you think about us, we're standing up for people that were screwed over. And, and I think that when you, when you, you remind especially the younger lawyers that you don't have you know, 30 or 40 cases, you've got a bunch of individual clients that need our help. And when you do right by them, the joy that they feel and the, the level of appreciativeness that they express to you, it, it means the world. Not a better feeling in the world after you've resolved a case, either successfully by settlement or by trial, to have your client reach out to you and say nice things about you. Or Absolutely. i got one last question. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to. We can edit it out because it's not a question that uh, I told you I was going to ask, but it's not one that I normally ask. Uh, but you seem self-assured enough to maybe answer it. Everyone likes to talk about their wins, and you've had you know lots and lots of multi-million dollar wins. But you admitted that, like most of us who tried cases, you haven't won every trial. How do you bounce back after a loss? It's an, uh, the only the, the way you can bounce back after a loss is by feeling that you did everything you could. What would be hard, and I know that this is maybe a bit nuanced. It would be hard to bounce back from a loss if I didn't feel like I left everything on the table during that trial. Yeah. So, you know, it's not, you know, you, you may, you might be on the, the right side of the case, but you're not going to win necessarily every one. I mean, I, I experienced it once early in my career in a case I tried with Steve Levin. And, you know, I bounced back pretty quickly because I, you know, the jury came up and said that they loved everything that we did. They thought that the doctor was negligent. They just didn't think that the anticoagulants had enough time, had enough time to work to uh, fix the pulmonary embolism that was massive that our clients suffered for. So I guess my advice is if you try a, a case and you've got, let's just call it a good case, which I think really just means there's upside, you can ring the bell, there's egregious conduct, you're trying to, you know, you're not, you're just, it's a gut feeling. I mean, no one knows the value of a case except for 12 jurors, right? I mean, prior settlements are sort of meaningless. 
there what a couple of lawyers decided under different facts, under different circumstances, at a different time, what a case was worth. That, that doesn't tell you what your case is worth. And you know, the, the, as long as you put everything out there, it just happens. I mean, it sucks. It's the worst, worst feeling I think in our profession. I don't know what can be worse. Am I missing something, Michael? Uh, no, losing it. But. You know, you know that there's a next one, and you know you gave it your best shot. And most of the time, even when I think there's been two or three cases I've lost, I, I'm saying two and a half was one. There was a settlement in the middle, and I thought it was a really hard case, so it was kind of a half loss, but not a full loss. But most, all of those people have been afterwards extremely appreciative that I stood up and fought for them because that's what they're absolutely yes, they want to be compensated for the wrong that they went through, but. You know, how many times have you heard when a client calls you that they're not in this for the money? Yeah. I mean, everybody says that, and I'm sure there some of them are, you know, want to be compensated, and rightfully so, but most of the really good people that you represent after I've had a loss have said, you know, how thankful they were that I at least fought. And that's all you can do. It's like anything else in life. You don't win everything. You know, we only control our output, and so I think all we can do is put it all in there and just know if you get back in there the next time you got a shot at one of the next one. Right. I mean, there, there was a smaller case that I tried. It was an ankle fracture where a woman, a woman's husband. I wasn't particularly. I'll admit, I was not particularly excited about trying the case. I tried to resolve it. I called an adjuster up that I knew from a company. I said, "What's going on with this adjuster? Why won't you just settle the case?" We could sell it for 100, 200 grand. It was an ankle fracture. It healed in three months, and the guy went, the guy died a year or so later of unrelated causes. I'm like, I'm not thinking I'm going to ring the bell here. And the, the adjuster, you know, that was a situation where the adjuster sort of made it easy because they offered like 25000 I said, all right, you know, I'll just take a shot. So we got a $550,000 verdict, and that woman was so happy. She was an older woman. It was her husband was in a, a skilled nursing facility. She was so happy. Her husband had been dealing with a lot of medical conditions. And this actually just, it doesn't sound crazy, but when you're already dealing with a lot and you add insult to that, it's tough. That woman months later sent my, me and my wife baby clothes for my daughter. And it was one of the oh, wow. prouder cases I've tried. Half a million dollars for an ankle fracture. Uh, and, and most of the clients are like that. They're just appreciative of, of you standing up for them. Well, Mike, thank you so much for coming on the show. I know I've learned a lot. I hope all of our listeners have learned a lot from you, too. If someone wants to find you or reach out to you, uh, talk about a case or to follow up on something, what's the best way to find you? Two numbers. Um, my direct number, 312-516-1111. Or my email address is M as in Michael, F as in Frank, B as in boy, at levinperconti.com. That's L-E-V-I-N-P-E-R-C-O-N-T-I.com. Thank you. Just a couple of things we're closing out. I'm going to be on the road speaking at some events. If you guys are at any of these events, 
uh, please come by and say hi. I love it when people come by and tell me that they listen to the podcast. It just makes me feel happy. Uh, so I'm going to be at the Trial Lawyers University event in Las Vegas from uh, October 27th to 29th. On the 29th, we're actually going to be recording some of the some podcast episodes live. So if you want to come and watch it, record one, you can do that. Uh, so we'll both be we'll both be speaking and actually having workshops where you can bring a case, and I'll help you brainstorm one of your cases. I'm also speaking at the AAJ uh, Trucking College in Denver, Colorado, November 7th through 9th. Again, that's another one where we'll be working with people in small groups as well as, as well as teaching. It should be fun. It's a great opportunity to develop your skills. And at the Indiana Trial Lawyers Association uh, Conference, uh, November 17th through 18th in Indianapolis, I'll be there as well. So if you guys are at any of those, please come by and say hi. I look forward to talking to you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for joining us on Trial Lawyer Nation. I hope you enjoyed our show. If you'd like to receive updates, insider information, and more from Trial Lawyer Nation, sign up for our mailing list at triallawyernation.com. You can also visit our episodes page on the website for show notes and direct links to any resources in this or any past episode. To help more attorneys find our podcast, please like, share, and subscribe to our podcast on any of our social media outlets. If you'd like access to exclusive, plaintiff lawyer-only content and live monthly discussions with me, send a request to join the Trial Lawyer Nation Insider Circle Facebook group. Thanks again for tuning in. I look forward to having you with us next time on Trial Lawyer Nation. Each year, the law firm of Cowan Rodriguez Peacock pays millions of dollars in co-counsel fees to attorneys nationwide on trucking and commercial vehicle cases. If you have an injury case involving death or catastrophic injuries and would like to partner with our firm, please contact us by calling 210-941-1301 to discuss the case in detail and see where we can add value in a partnership. This podcast has been hosted by Michael Cowan and is not intended to nor does it create the attorney-client privilege between our host, guest, and any listener for any reason. Content from the podcast is not to be interpreted as legal advice. All thoughts and opinions expressed herein are only those from which they came.